The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. A few things, a few pieces of business, if you would, as you think about our pastor, Gary. He is back in England again, getting his third round of treatments, and I know he and his family would appreciate your prayers. Um, so many things uh, can go wrong. As safe as the procedure is, there's a number of things that can. And so well, let's just continue to pray for him that uh, things would go well and that it would uh, take care of the cancer in his liver. A couple other things. Um, backpack buddies out in the lobby, we would love for you to, to get the name of a child. Um, about 1,500 kids in the area um, are in need. And so we try to provide this, this great ministry, Backpack Buddies, provides backpacks to uh, get them ready to go as the school year begins. And it helps them out and their families out and, and the uh, teachers and administrators. So we would love for you to pick up all of 250 or 300 backpacks is our portion uh, that, uh, that we are covering. And then finally, the last uh, piece is this, that uh, we were planning to have an open house today to kind of show off, you know, the results of all the exciting chaos uh, that's been happening around here. And there's a lot of neat things to see already. You guys have seen the transition, the, the transformation as it's been going on. And I think in, in our excitement, we thought, we're just going to do an open house. The very first day that we open up and, and invite the kids in, right? And we were like, what were we thinking I mean, who does that? Any of y'all have done a remodel? No, things don't go according to plan. And, uh, and so we are pushing that off a bit. We, we thought if we did it today, we'd probably have to change our theme from Launchpad to Bob the Builder. So <laughs> we're going to wait on that, and uh, we'll be inviting you guys when, um, when it's a little bit more of a party-like atmosphere. And speaking of parties, see what I did there? Here's a question for you. If you were going to throw Jesus a party and you wanted to present him with a gift that brought great honor to him, what would you offer him? What would you offer him? Today we're going to be looking at a, at a short narrative from John 12 that tells of a very precious gift that is offered to Jesus at a party just before the Passion Week begins. And this gift... This gift is so extravagant, it is, it's so pure and unassuming as well as extravagant that Jesus says of Mary's act, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done is going to be told in memory of her. Wow, I mean, can you imagine that this is so fitting, so appropriate to where Jesus is headed he says, this is a part of the gospel story. This is going to be a part of the gospel story. Let's pray. Father, in light of that, I pray that today you would prick our hearts, open our eyes, help us to consider whether we are living our lives in light of the gospel story. Father, change us. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, if you'd like, you can go ahead and open to John 12. Let me give you a little context as you're getting there. Um, just days earlier, the, uh, the smell of death was wafting thick, thickly through uh, this small little village of uh, uh, Bethany, just two miles east of Jerusalem. You see, Lazarus had died a week earlier. 
And he had been entombed for four days, and, uh, and his friend, Jesus, shows up with this special, amazing gift to give this family and this community, and literally calls Lazarus back from the dead, something that had never been done before. And so Lazarus and his sisters, Martha and Mary, they want to throw Jesus a party to show honor to their friend and to their Lord uh, for this amazing gift that he had given them and given their community. So let's pick it up in John 12, verses 1 and 2. So six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So present at the party are Jesus and all his, his uh, band of 12, his disciples. Uh, we, we discover in the other two gospel stories that talk about this particular narrative that, uh, that this happens at the home of Simon the leper. So a, probably a wealthy uh, man in that community and probably had leprosy at one point and Jesus had healed him of that earlier in his ministry. And so he's going to be there. Lazarus is going to be there joining all the guests at dinner, no doubt, telling stories of what Jesus had done for him. Uh, there's probably some special invited guests from the community as well. And then Martha is going to be overseeing the food prep. If you know anything about Martha, that's a good task to put her in charge of. And she's excited about doing it. And Mary, Mary's the youngest sibling whom we meet three times in scripture, in scripture, each time she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, whom she loves. And she has a special gift planned for Jesus. By the way, it should probably be also said that this whole thing is against the law. The whole thing is against the law. See, people were no longer free to be in the company of Jesus because because they were required to report him to the authorities, to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. You see, this, this whole miracle of Lazarus, the seventh sign that Jesus does, this is the sign that he clearly says, I am the resurrection and the life. In me, you have life. In me, you live in light of the resurrection, right? So, in light of what has just happened, people from all around are coming uh, to uh, put their faith in Christ. The, the, the floodgates of hope and belief have been opened wide and people are coming all around to see this miracle. So consequently, the, the Jewish ruling council um, says this of him, of Jesus, and I quote, if we let him, Jesus, go on like this, everyone, everyone will believe in him. And so they issued an edict for his arrest requiring that anybody that knows anything about his whereabouts is to turn him in. And so by throwing this party, by inviting Jesus and not letting the authorities know, the truth is they were clearly breaking the law. And I would just say that I don't think that this family uh, could have cared less. You know, I just don't think they, they cared. There are times in our lives when you have to ask yourself, is it right for me to obey God or to obey man? Following God's costly in our lives, am I right? It's costly to follow God. And I've often thought that one of the reasons that the church has lost its position of influence in the culture around us is that when our obedience might cost us something, 
You know, when we have to really risk something, we tend to choose the safe path and our faith shrinks. When God would have us take the risky path, the path of faith, and see our faith actually grow. And so consequently, there are fewer and fewer God sightings, if you will, places where we clearly see the power of God at work in our midst. And so when we come together as the people of God, the the family of God, we don't have a whole lot to talk about when it comes to pointing to the work of God in our lives because we, we play it safe. We have few stories, if you will, to spur one another on to love and to good deeds when we come together as the family. But this family, Lazarus and his sisters, they had influence in their community. And now even more so with the resurrection of Lazarus. And the Sanhedrin wanted to stomp it out. Well, let's read of Mary's gift. Let's read 12.3. Let me take a drink. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. You know, gift giving is so risky. I, I don't know how uh, you've experienced it in your life, but I, I just think that gift giving is a, is a risky endeavor because you never know how your gift is going to be received. Like, are they going to see your heart? Are they going to know the thought behind it? Are they going to recognize the sacrifice that you have made? Are they going to really see all that and understand? So it's a, it's a bit risky. One of my favorite gifts... Um, that I've ever received from my wife happened um, many years ago while we were still dating. Um, I was leading worship at the time, and, uh, and I had a borrowed 12-string guitar with a nice pickup, and I kept talking to her about this guitar and how much I enjoyed this guitar, the ability to plug into the system and uh, be amplified. And so on my birthday, she, she went to the, the one who owned the guitar and she bought the guitar off of and presented it to me at my birthday in the park. It was one of the sweetest gifts that, that, that she had ever given me. I, I was beside myself. You see, here's the thing to gift giving. The, the key to gift giving is, uh, is that you have to pay attention. That's the deal with gift giving. Like You have to pay attention to the person that you're giving the gift to. You have to know what's going on in their life, know what's going on in their hearts. And this is what I love about this scene. Because Mary simply, um, Mary had been paying attention. She had been sitting at the feet of Jesus. I love that. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. The, the, The fact is all of us as disciples of Christ need to spend more time sitting at the feet of Jesus. And as a result of that, um, she's one of those precious people, I think, who, uh, uh, who loved uh, Jesus without many expectations. Um, I don't think she had this big agenda for Jesus. She simply knew that when Jesus spoke, it was like somebody turning on the lights in a very, very dark room, in a, in a very dark world. But his words and his presence seemed to chase away all the darkness and all the, lie, uh, all the lies. And so she, she loved to be in his presence and hear his words, his teachings, even the inconvenient teachings. Even those, those truths that were hard to hear, like when Jesus 
told his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem and die at the hands of evil men. His disciples were continuing to ignore that. They didn't want to hear that. But Mary, it seems, was willing to hear that. You see, just a week earlier, um, her family had faced one of the most inconvenient truths that there is in life, the death of somebody you love. Death brings pain, it brings separation. Friendships are ended. Families, they're, they're, they're left hurting. Couples are separated. Death absolutely stinks. Death stinks. And if you can, for a, for a moment, put yourself back in Mary's shoes, before the world knew anything of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And, uh, and, you, and you realize that, uh, <clears throat> that death's power um, is felt not only as we look at what it does when we die, but, but it affects us in how we live our very lives as well. You see, when the world feels broken with no hope of repair, it affects how people live. Norman Cousins, uh, a great uh, American journalist, writes this. He says, death is not the greatest loss in life. He says, the greatest loss is what, lo- what dies inside us while we live our lives. See, just one week before this party, Mary had likely um, helped prepare her brother's body for burial. You ever thought of that? The narrative doesn't tell us specifically, but there's a very good chance that she was a part of preparing her, her brother's body for burial. She would have anointed it with strong scents, wrapped it, the, his corpse in a burial shroud, knowing that the stench of death would be, soon become absolutely unbearable, just as the pain of separation had become unbearable and caused the te- her tears to flow down Lazarus' lifeless corpse. Consequently, I I think that the Holy Spirit was quickening Mary. I think he was quickening her heart. She was listening. She understood the hard things that this man of sorrows were foretelling. She understood that, that they were necessary and that they were near. She could see it in Jesus' eyes. She could hear it in his voice and in his teaching. She knew that the authorities had already um, issued an arrest warrant. The time was short. Jesus' death was imminent, and Mary seem to understand this. So Mary's gift, Mary's gift is to anoint Jesus for his coming death, it seems. John tells us that that she anointed his feet. Matthew and Mark, two other gospel uh, uh, narratives that include this story, say that uh, that she anointed his head as well. Likely, it was was, um, both, his head and his feet. What, What John is pointing to, though, is Mary's utter humility. Her utter humility to, uh, to, to, to care for his feet, to, to anoint um, the, his feet, to take the position of a servant, stooping to wash Jesus' feet as he would do in just a few days with the feet of each of his disciples. But while, while Mary's gift was loving and it was generous and fitting, don't miss this. I mean, don't miss this. It made little sense to everyone who was present. It was, it was awkward to watch this scene play out. I mean, she chose 12 full ounces, uh, like a, a can of Coke, right? It's a can of soda. 12 full ounces of pure imported spikenard 
It's a very prized and pure perfume that comes from northern India. Um, It would have cost 300 denarii, which would have been basically what you'd pay a day worker for an entire year. This was very costly. It may have been an heirloom passed down through her family, or it may have been something that she saved up and bought with her own money to be part of her dowry. But either way, it's likely the most valuable thing that Mary owned, and she owned quite a bit of it. What's amazing is that she committed the whole thing. Like, why in the world, why in the world would you commit this, this whole flask, this alb, uh, alabaster flask of this spikenard? It says that she broke it open, meaning the whole thing was committed to, to this act, when there would have been more than enough to anoint his head and his feet with just a small uh, portion of that. And why the need? Why the need to let down her hair and to wipe the perfume over his calves and his feet? As you know, uh, her hair would have been a very intimate part of her body. Perhaps it was because her hair was the cleanest part of her, and she wanted to make sure that she covered every bit of his calves and his feet and his toes. And perhaps she thought, like John the Baptist, my hands are not worthy to even untie his sandals. And so she lets down her hair and she wipes this uh, over every inch of his feet. I believe that Mary was remembering the death of her, uh, of her, of her brother, the death, burial, and, uh, and restoration um, And so she is, in essence, saying to Jesus, this thing you do, this this very special gift that you have given to our family, we know it's going to cost you far more than we can even imagine. Thank you. Thank you for uh, your kind gift and how it has removed the stench of death from our, our home and from this village and that you will conquer uh, and, and remove the power uh, and the odor of sin and death for all who trust in you. Thank you for the coming resurrection. And that we can walk in light of life now and not of death. Now, let me say this. I don't know that Mary um, was putting her finger on every bit of that, all those specifics. But I can say that her acts seem to hint of every bit of that. But the scene is interrupted. So the scene takes place, this, this beautiful um, gift of love, and then it's interrupted by one of Jesus' professional disciples, I'll call him. So let's read John 12, 4-6. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, um, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into that bag. So the room must have absolutely been still watching this whole thing take place. And finally, the silence is broken by Judas's words. Um, and no doubt, words of, of anger. How dare she take what could have been sold for a, such a great sum of money and, and, and given to care for the poor? 
What, what were you thinking, right? Can you imagine the shame and the slander that he was communicating to this, to this young woman who loved her Savior? His judgment is quick. His judgment is harsh. To Judas, this was absolutely scandalous. It was scandalous. And here's the question I think that John is wanting all of us to wrestle with as we see this whole thing unfold, and that is this. Which disciple has rightly understood the significance of Jesus' life? Is it the professional or is it the friend? Is it the professional or the friend? And let's say you were one of those who had been been invited as a part of that community. You were one of the special guests there what would you have thought? Who might you have sided with as you watch this, as you watch this play out? Well, then Jesus weighs in. Let's read verses seven through nine. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always will have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised uh, from the dead. So Jesus comes to Mary's rescue. Her deed is understood. Her deed is commended, absolutely commended. It's not just, it is not just good, but, but he tells us it will be remembered forever is what he says in, uh, in Matthew and Mark's um, um, description of this scene. Um, It was fitting, it was beautiful, it was kind, it was perfect. Jesus rejects Judas's phony concern for the poor. I mean, it's like, well, Judas, of course, the the poor are always going to be among us, and that is the role of the church. We are going to care for the poor. We're going to continue to do that, but you won't always have me. It's a unique situation. It called for a, a unique gift to be offered. And then John offers this commentary about Judas. It says, Judas was a thief. It's the only place we see that in Scripture is from John. John goes ahead and kind of lets us in on the secret, no doubt knowing the end where it's all going before he writes his, uh, his gospel. But he was a thief, regularly helped himself to the money. He was an opportunist. He saw this as a major windfall opportunity. And when he realized it's been taken away from him, this is the point in Judas' mind. This is the straw that breaks the camel's back, so to speak. And he heads out from here to basically create his own windfall opportunity. He sells his savior out for a small sum. Let me just say this. I think that Judas is, he he serves as a a warning to every single one of us. Judas serves as a warning to all of us because he looked every bit the disciple. I mean, they would not have given him the money bag if he didn't display a certain kind of consistency in his life. He was the one that carried the money. He probably could have quoted dozens of Old Testament passages about how they were to care for the poor. But the truth is, Judas was a phony. He wasn't the real thing. You see, being close to Jesus and familiar with Jesus does not ever guarantee a changed heart. It just doesn't. There's a lot of people that are familiar with, with, with Jesus. 
I think about that often with the, the, the many people that are in churches throughout America and throughout the world. We can become very familiar with Jesus, but we have to examine ourselves because you see, it's a changed heart um, that is exemplified by spirit-led actions, spirit-led courage, and spirit-led vulnerability. A changed heart, one who truly knows the Lord, is one who uh, will, their life will be exemplified by spirit-led actions, spirit-led courage, spirit-led vulnerability. So what do you think prompted such a display of gratitude from Mary? I mean, what was going on in her mind? I, I believe that it was the Spirit of God guiding her into this beautiful beautiful act of love for her Lord. And what I love most about Mary is how blind she was to herself. She was blind to herself. It's as if she didn't even know how this whole thing looked to those around her. She just knew that this is what God would have her to do to fully give away something so incredibly precious and valuable to her. That it would would look to anybody there like it was a waste, a flagrant waste. And I think to myself, how often we waste valuable opportunities because we fear, we fear man more than we fear God. We fear having enough, we fear loss of control, we fear the questions, the looks, the accusations, and so we don't act. We don't act so often in our lives. I love what Anne Graham Lott says about Mary. She says, Mary gave Jesus everything, her hope for a future, her financial security, her reputation, even herself. By breaking her alabaster jar, she withheld absolutely nothing from him, and she expected nothing in return. So, is there an alabaster jar that God is calling you to pour out in your life. For Abraham, it was Isaac offering his son. For David, it was a stone, a sling, and a giant. For Daniel, it was a a kosher diet and a, a faithful prayer life and then a den of lions. For the disciples, it was five loaves, two fish, and 5,000 hungry bellies. For the widow, it was one mite, an offering box, and a, and, a, and a budget that was going to be really tight. What is it for you? You know, God doesn't want you to prove anything to him. I don't think that's what's going on here. God's not saying, I want you to prove something to me, though, though a heart of gratitude to our Savior is likely the clearest picture, the clearest evidence of genuine and useful faith to our Father. Mary's act was one of humble gratitude. She was under no compulsion except the compulsion to her own heart. She knew that she absolutely had to do this thing or she was gonna burst. And it made this this exceedingly precious gift to her Savior. So let me tell you about one of my alabaster moments. Uh, I came to faith 35 years ago, way back there, right? And um, 
And at the time, it was, at the time I was studying to be an engineer. Um, that, was, that was where I was in college at the time, and that's what I was running hard after. And it wasn't long, maybe a year into my faith, before friends and, and the, the leaders in the ministry at the church I was a part of began to pull me aside and say, Shannon, have you considered vocational ministry? And, and I heard it over, everywhere I turned, I seemed to keep hearing that question. And the truth was, I did not want any part of it. I mean, I'm like, get that as far away from me as you can. I do not want to share my life publicly. I think there was a lot that I feared. I, I feared a loss of privacy. I feared a loss of control over my life and how I wanted to live my life, even if sometimes I just wanted to live my life selfishly, like for Shannon, not, not having to worry that it was gonna impact so many people, right? The public scrutiny over my choices, the choices of my, my family one day, my kids one day, whether I would measure up as a leader, as a shepherd, as a, as a teacher, my loss of freedom to run hard after making money, a big portfolio to get what I wanted in life. And I'm telling you, I wrestled and I wrestled with that decision back and forth between this this weird thing of vocational ministry and this known of engineering. And I did that for about three years. And my mom and dad, they came to me and um, they said, we know of a group here in Dallas that does some uh, evaluation it's two days of testing. It's a battery of tests. It's literally eight to five for two days. And uh, we want you to go through that. And it will help you understand your top three natural aptitudes and your top three interests. So can we do that? And I said, sure, what have I got to lose? And so I did that and, and I came to find out my, my uh, number one aptitude is to be a surgeon. Right, there you go, right? <clears throat> number two was an engineer. And number three was people. In terms of my interests, my number one was written communication. And they said, but you don't really have the ability there, so you probably ought to write that one off. I'm like, all right, done. Engineer, number two. And people was three. And I I, I took that information, I'm like, that still doesn't make this whole thing that clear to me because these two are sitting side by side, which is it? I wrestled, I wrestled the weight of that plagued me for a number of more months and I finally just said I can't do this anymore and I made my decision and I announced to everybody I am going to be an engineer and that night we had a prayer meeting at our church just a a prayer and worship night and I was so excited to go with this burden off my shoulders and I could relax and enjoy this night it was a it was a beautiful night of prayer and worship and and I, I just loved it I came home all the way home driving home singing And then this song came on the radio by a guy named Steve Green called Broken and Spilled Out. And it's the story that we're looking at today, but to verse. The story of this young woman who was unafraid, who forgot herself, who was willing to offer Jesus her greatest treasure, not holding anything back. And the fragrance filled the whole house. You see, I'd been weighing out my decision from the perspective of what is this going to cost me? What's this going to cost me? And is it worth it to me? 
That was my litmus test. That was my evaluation. That night, the Spirit of God made it so, so clear to me as I sat in my car, as I opened to, to read through that passage and I read of this young girl's extravagant gift that my perspective, my perspective on my life was so far out of whack. Because here's the thing. Jesus is always worth it. Jesus is better. Jesus is always, always better. So I should desire to live my life. We, as his disciples who sit at his feet, should desire to live our lives offering up our treasures and our talents and our time because Jesus, Jesus is worth it. No matter what it cost me, Jesus is worth it. Now, don't misunderstand me. Your alabaster moment is not whether to go into the ministry or not, right? I'm not trying to say that. I'm not saying we all pack it up and and head into vocational ministry. Your alabaster moment is looking at what, what God is doing in your life in all your different vocational settings and all your situations right now. And your decision is this, is will you offer to Jesus what is already his? Everything you have and everything that you are. And, and as you do, risking being misunderstood by your family and your friends and your coworkers, as you do it. This is, this is living in light of the resurrection. I love what uh, Galatians 2.20 says. He says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, I'm, I'm dead. <laughs> I no longer live, but Christ, he lives in me. Oswald Chambers, describing that, that little principle there of resurrection life, says this. He says, the passion of Christianity comes from deliberately signing away uh, my own rights and becoming a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And until I do that, and until you do that, until we do that, We will not begin to be a sweet aroma to him. So, are you living in light of the resurrection? Mary was. Mary's lesson to all of us is this, that Jesus is absolutely worth it. Jesus is better. We live in light of the resurrection. It means that we love extravagantly We serve extravagantly. We give extravagantly. Jesus is better. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would have eyes like Mary's. We absolutely should. We live on this side of the resurrection. So, Father, I pray that our lives would also be a sweet aroma worthy of the gospel message. And, Father, we just acknowledge to you that Jesus is better and Jesus is worth it. And I pray we have courage as we head out of here today knowing that you meet us in so many places, in so many moments. And you want your power to be seen in this community 
in so many ways so that as we come together, we spur one another on to love and good deeds with these amazing pictures of resurrection life as we lean into you. We give all this to you for your glory. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.